0: section fifteen of social life in england seventeen fifty to eighteen fifty by f j folks jackson this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela Nagami. lecture five crevy papers the regency part three the princess caroline had left england in eighteen fourteen and had been touring in the mediterranean ever since at first she was attended by some english in her suite but these gradually dropped off leaving her royal highness without any of her husband's subjects about her we need not follow her in her travels or adventures it is enough to say that she visited very out-of-the-way places and mixed with the sort of people no ordinary lady not to say a royal princess could be expected to meet she loaded her courier, Bergami, with honors and favors. She founded an order of knighthood when she visited Jerusalem and made him grandmaster. She had procured for him the title of baron. Her conduct, and the familiarities she permitted, were to say the least indiscreet. Undoubtedly she had laid herself open to a serious charge of misconduct. The prince-regent, resolved to do his best to get rid of his hated wife by trying to obtain a divorce but not only law but also public opinion was against this he had driven his wife away with every possible insult he had kept her apart from her daughter the queen his mother had refused to receive her as princess of wales at court and if in desperation caroline had failed in her duty europe rang with stories of the immorality of the regent and the common people were heart and soul on the side of his wife as a divorce seemed hopeless attempts were made to bribe caroline to renounce her titles and live on a large income out of england matters came to a climax when george the third died if george the fourth was king his wife was queen of england and she was resolved to return to the country and maintain her rights. This miserable matrimonial squabble, with all its sordid details, rapidly assumed the dimensions of a political struggle which rent the country in twain. The Whigs had never forgiven George for using them as long as he was Prince of Wales and throwing them over when he became regent in 1812. They therefore espoused the cause of the queen and as far as possible for they had little admiration for her conduct defended her the whig lawyers rallied to her cause notably henry brougham who despite his great talents had suffered from the exclusiveness of the great whig families as a parvenu high political office was closed to brougham but the case of the queen gave him an unrivalled chance as a lawyer more honest and unselfish and almost as useful to queen caroline was alderman wood a prominent citizen of london who more than once filled the office of lord mayor despised by the polite society of the time called by the king with his usual delicacy that beast would the alderman understood better than any one the effect of the queen's return to the country he knew that however great her indiscretions her wrongs could win her popular sympathy, and that her courage in facing her accusers would be sure to range the nation on her side. That he was no vulgar demagogue is attested by the facts, that the royal family often sought as counsel, that it is due to his advice that Queen Victoria was born in England, and that he was the first baronet she created shortly after her accession to the throne. But of all the queen's friends there is no one who was more honest and faithful than the gaunt scotch spinster the lady anne hamilton whose memoirs were published when she was very old without her consent and greatly to her distress the daughter of the duke of hamilton and sister to the radical lord archibald hamilton she was six foot high awkward and ungainly and an object of ridicule to caroline and her friends they called her joan of arc and showed her no consideration and little courtesy yet in her hours of trial caroline had no truer or stauncher friend her secret history of the court of england published under the circumstances to which i have alluded is extraordinarily scurrilous but it reflects the fierceness of party spirit which animated the whig faction and i may have to recur to it george the third died on january twenty ninth eighteen twenty the first act of his successor was to refuse to allow the new queen's name to appear in the prayer for the royal family but on the seventh of june her majesty entered london the road from Westminster Bridge to Greenwich was thronged with spectators. She traveled, says Grenville, in an open Landau, Alderman Wood by her side, and Lady Anne Hamilton and another woman opposite. Everyone was disgusted at the vulgarity of Wood sitting in the place of honor, whilst the Duke of Hamilton's sister was sitting backwards in the carriage. It is impossible, he adds, to conceive the sensation created by this event. Nobody either blames or approves of this sudden return, but all ask, what will be done next? How is it to end? Events moved rapidly. The Prime Minister, Lord Liverpool, produced the famous green bag, full of incriminating documents in the House of Lords. But the Queen did not flinch it was even proposed to bring her to trial under the fourteenth-century act of treasons twenty three edward the third finally however the king's advisers determined not to try the queen but to introduce a bill into the house of lords depriving her of all royal titles and dignities and divorcing her from her husband but in order to carry the bill an investigation into her conduct was necessary so that she was practically, if not actually, tried. I propose to ask you to follow the Queen's case in Creevy's notes, and I think we shall gather from them something of the interest with which people watched it. The trial began on August 17th, and Creevy thus describes the entry of the Queen. To describe to you her appearance and manner is far beyond my powers, I had been taught to believe that she was much improved in looks as in dignity of manners. It is therefore with much pain I am obliged to observe that the nearest resemblance I can recollect to this much-injured lady is a toy which you used to call Fanny Royd. There is another toy of a rabbit or a cat, whose tail you squeeze under its body, and then out it jumps in half a minute off the ground into the air. The first of these toys you must suppose to represent the person of the Queen. The latter, the manner by which she popped all at once into the house, made a duck at the throne, another to the peers, and a concluding jump into the chair which was placed for her. Lady Anne Hamilton was behind the Queen, leaning on her brother Archie's arm. She is full six feet high and bears a striking resemblance to one of Lord Derby's great dear broom and denman both spoke for the queen and she was better received on the next day the eighteenth creavy went off to his club and wrote nothing can be more triumphant for the queen than this day altogether the law officers of the crown are damnably overweighted by broom and denman the next day the facts adduced by the attorney-general made things look bad a less numerous and reputable crowd appeared to cheer the queen on the twenty-second now writes creevy her danger begins but then things began to mend the witness in whom the prosecution had most confidence was a certain teodoro maggiochi Broom forced him to contradict himself and seeing how he was being driven into admissions the witness continually replied non mi ricordo i don't remember a phrase which became for a time proverbial. There were very few English witnesses, but when Creevy, on August 25th, mentioned this to the Duke of Wellington, His Grace replied, Po! but we have a great many English witnesses, officers. And this was the thing, writes Creevy, which frightened me most. On the 26th the evidence of a chambermaid gave trouble, and Creevy is angry with the Queen. This, to quote him, gives considerable, indeed very great advantage, to the case of that eternal fool to call her the queen no worse name. A few days later, September 8th, he calls her the idiot. The next day the house adjourned till the 3rd October and the divorce clause was dropped. Creevy remarks that now the bill of pains and penalties was really directed against the king, its object being to declare the queen an abandoned woman and the king a fit associate for her when the house sat on october third mr broom made his great speech for the defence on the sixth it came out that the husband of the queen's friend lady charlotte lindsay had sold his wife's letters to the treasury on the ninth Creevy reports the town literally drunk with joy at the unparalleled triumph of the queen but at four p m the weather changed two naval officers flynn and hounham were called for the defence and broke down under cross-examination so that the queen's guilt became almost certain then the government lost its advantage by committing the mistake of letting a witness who was to have been indicted for perjury leave the country on the thirteenth the duke of norfolk wrote to creevy saying that If this horrible bill passed, he would feel no regret that as a Roman Catholic he could not take his seat as a peer. At last, on October 24th, the trial was nearing its end, and Denman began to sum up. The attack he made on the King and the Duke of Clarence, who had been especially bitter against the Queen, is a striking example of the freedom allowed to a British advocate he compared the case to the dismissal of the virtuous octavia by nero and the examination of her servants by his infamous minister Tigellinus. he looked at the duke of clarence and declared that he ought to come forward as a witness and not whisper slanders against caroline the queen he said might well exclaim come forth thou slanderer and let me see thy face if thou wouldest equal the respectability of an italian witness come forth and depose an open court as thou art thou art worse than an italian assassin because while i am boldly and manfully meeting my accusers thou art plunging a dagger unseen into my bosom in his peroration denman made a most unlucky slip but he faithfully reproduced the irrational attitude of public opinion the people believed the queen guilty, and yet desired her acquittal. She had suffered so cruelly, she had been so shamefully treated, her ruin had been sought by employing spies against her, her accusers were worse than she. So Denman quoted the divine words to less guilty accusers of a sinful woman, Go and sin no more, whereupon a wag wrote, Most gracious queen we thee implore to go away and sin no more, but if that effort be too great to go away at any rate. Then followed the debate, and on the 6th of November, even with the aid of eleven of the bishops, there was a majority of only twenty-eight in favor of the Bill of Pains and Penalties. The feeling of the peers was in accordance with Denman's peroration. Carolyn was guilty, but ought not to be punished said Lord Ellenborough. No man who had heard the evidence would say that the Queen of England was not the last woman in the country which a man of honour would wish his wife to resemble, or the father of a family would recommend as an example to his daughters. Loud cheers. But he voted against the bill. On November 8th it was proposed that the divorce clause should be tacked on to the bill. Creevey writes, November 10th, three times three if you please before you read a word further the bill has gone thank god to the devil their majority was brought down to nine and then the dolorous liverpool came forward and struck he moved that his own bill be read this day six months i was a bad boy he writes next morning and drank an extra bottle of claret with folly dundas etc i need not tell the rest of poor caroline's story how public feeling calmed down especially when parliament voted her fifty thousand pounds two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year how she tried to attend the coronation how she died and the king ordered the body not to be taken through london and how the people rose and forced the funeral procession to pass through the city how at last she found rest among her ancestors in her native Brunswick. Time will not permit me to do more than allude to George's visit to Ireland at the very time his injured wife was dying, and his speech, This is one of the happiest days of my life. I have long wished to visit you. My heart has always been Irish. Go and do by me as I shall do by you. Go and drink my health in a bumper, i shall drink all yours in a bumper of irish whiskey. well might byron celebrate the occasion of the irish visit and the king's tumultuous welcome is it madness or meanness which clings to thee now were he god as he is but the commonest clay with scarce fewer wrinkles than sins on his brow such servile devotion might shame him away i roar in his train let their orators lash their fanciful spirit to pamper his pride i am afraid i have occupied much time with this famous trial had i told you the evidence in the least detail i should only have inspired disgust nor should i have selected the subject except for a special reason though no results immediately followed even though george the fourth recovered his popularity in a measure For he was a very clever and could be a very charming man. Yet the very fact that the bill was introduced into the House of Lords ranged public opinion against that branch of the legislature as nothing previously seemed to have done. It brought about the time when the days of the aristocracy as the sole influence in government were to be numbered. Peers were no longer to be allowed the enormous privileges they had enjoyed. They had ranged themselves on the side of the throne in an unjust cause, not because they cared for the king, but because they considered their interests and his to be identical. The Reform Bill of 1832 was the answer of the English middle class to the Bill of Pains and Penalties of 1820. End of Section 15